So he was a junior in high school when I started with them. I think he weighed like 200, 205 pounds. Um, so we just, you know, basically cut the volume almost by two thirds. And within the first month, his vertical increased like five inches. Wow. <laughs> and again, it wasn't, and it wasn't what I was doing with them. It's what, you know, we weren't doing with them. That was Mark McLaughlin. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. You can get a free trial of their training portal software by heading to teambuilder.com and you can use the code JUSTFLY for a 30-day free trial. Sign up today with Team Builder and see what they can do for you for your training programs and your team. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. It's great to have you here. I'm excited to welcome back to the podcast, Mark McLaughlin. He is the founder of Performance Training Center, and he works as a strength coach in the Lake Oswego School District in Oregon. Uh, Mark was recently on the show speaking on his creative and wide-ranging approach to athletic performance with an emphasis on athlete learning, movement training, long-term development, and also the importance of the aerobic system. Mark is known in the coaching industry for his ability to get results. And on today's podcast, he'll be going into a case study of an athlete he recently worked with who, in just over two years' time, put two feet on a standing long jump, 11 inches on his vertical. And within that case study, Mark will be speaking on the important aspects of athlete autonomy, the appropriate pacing and progression and training for not just short-term, but long-term results in that long-term viewpoint of performance. He'll be talking about plyometrics and jump training, hill sprints and capacity, and so much more. I really enjoy speaking with Mark. He has such a heart for athletic development and helping athletes get the most of their own journey of performance training. And uh, that being said, let's get on to the show here, 398 with Mark McLaughlin. Mark, welcome back to the show. It's really great to have you back on, and I'm excited to chat today. Yeah, Joel, thanks a lot. I love that we're having this reoccurring uh, podcast going here. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just been really like a combination of both intrigued uh, especially with what you're doing more on the aerobic the tempo the heart rate side and then i just love seeing like a lot of the the athletic movements and athletic qualities you know physical education and, and escalating that to the needs of athletes and uh one of the things i think um you know we talked about last time was like aerobic and tempo and uh, that that's okay <laughs> i think so you know pendulums swing pretty hard and you had a really good case study of a young athlete who you had worked with who just put an extraordinary amount of strength and speed on his frame. Um, and you had a, a multi-part blog series on that. And I'd be curious for you to uh, just share one, just just about the first, maybe the gains the individual did make, because I think it's nice to have that precedent. And obviously all athletes are, you know, we're going to have the bell curve of gains and responses, but um, share a little bit of that and then get into um, what you did with this um, young individual and how that training yeah. unfolded. Yeah. Yeah, so I wrote a three-part series on with uh, an athlete that I had trained, um, Hunter Cavanaugh. And Hunter was uh, exclusively an American football player. And I was fortunate to start with him when he was a sophomore in high school. And that was actually my first year um, at Lake Oswego. And so then, you know, the series kind of covered what we did, what him and I did together over those, you know, three years. And 
you know, his gains were, I think, um, you know, out of the ordinary for, you know, a lot of high school kids. Like he started with me as I believe his vertical was like 27 inches. And then he went to this lineman challenge this past summer and um, his vertical tested out at 38.5 on a just jump mat. And then when I started with him, his standing long jump, I think was eight something. And at the same camp, uh, he jumped 10 feet, two inches. And at that camp's been going on for 13 years. And, you know, those records that stood for 13 years and he broke both of those two. And it, I think it just kind of showcased to me just being, you know, patient with these athletes, especially with Hunter kind of understanding, you know, him at the beginning as a person, because he was already very dedicated. You know, I could tell that from the first moment I met him. And so the challenge to me was, you know, really kind of trying to put the brakes on him so he didn't get into any overtraining you know, where he was, you know, maybe doing a lot of extra stuff outside of what we were doing and kind of educating him on kind of my thought process on training, letting him tell me what he wanted to do, accomplish as an athlete, and then just kind of move the the process uh, forward. And just kind of, I mean, he, at the end of the three years, he trained 460 times with me. And as you and I were talking about prior to you know starting here this morning my goal is to get them to want to come back each session and so i think you know hunter's work ethic the fact that i think we made it fun for each other you know to to work collaboratively i think at the end of the day and the results kind of proved it with him it it worked extremely well yeah that combination of uh, having fun, athlete feeling like they have a voice and the autonomy of the athlete in that process or the ownership and then consistency. It's like if you have those three things, I think you can go so far. And and it's just kind of funny because I think that the main thing that a lot of people probably think of of those three is just well consistency, which is really important. But when you it's like, well, what does it take to be consistent? <laughs> you know, do you have to force it? I mean, and on some level, maybe, but like there's other things that can really make that consistency just feel like a joy and not like a, a grind, you know, all the time. Yeah. And kind of my philosophy within, you know, the constraints that I have at the school, because there's, you know, we're, we're kind of restricted on facilities sometimes, whether it be weather teams, whatever. And so, you know, you and I were talking about constraint-led, you know, uh, coaching with athletes. Well, as a coach, sometimes I'm kind of constraint-led as well. And so kind of the, some of the things that I did to facilitate, you know, fun and progress was, you know, I started a gymnastics program, per se, within the athletic development model that I have there. And all the kids love it. So number one, and that's part of the warm-up. So that's one to get them there. The other thing that we do prior to training is game-based. So they could play team handball. They mm-hmm. could play ultimate football, ultimate frisbee. I mean, we, you know, we have a rugby ball, um, you know, soccer. So some of these other things to get them there. And then at the beginning have the training be easy 
So we did a lot of body weight circuits at the beginning. I think we had a year and a half. I don't know if I even touched on it that much in the article series, but you know, you had Vern Gambetta on, I think a couple of weeks ago, Joel, and if people haven't listened to that podcast, they really should. Uh, but we used a lot of Vern circuits at the beginning. Um, and I think building that easiness, the structure of it, body weight, mastering some of this stuff and knowing Hunter's personality, how he did want to master even the basics. Like he wanted to come back every day to try to, you know, do something different or improve. And, you know, some points it's like, okay, man, I'm just going to let you do what you want to do today because, you know, you don't even need me. You just want to be here so much. And that's that just what you said is so important is the athlete eventually like doesn't need you there. And I think a lot of coaching can breed this. Um, it's almost like it, it can create a situation where, you know, the athlete feels like they need you to tell them exactly what to do or exactly what cue or technique or weight to put on. And unless some level of autonomy becomes to be cult or becomes cultivated in, in that package, I, th- I just think that's such a important piece as well. And you know, you just mentioned it there. So I thought it was certainly worth saying. Yeah. And because co team sport coaches, and you hear it a lot, they they want these kids to be leaders on the field. They they want them to show their teammates what to do. And my thought process, and and I totally get that, it's a skill that's learned. And so they need to have time within their day where someone's not telling them what to do because they have the teachers doing that all day. Mm -hmm. They have their parents doing that. So how can I foster a culture that allows them to have their voice, do what they feel they need to be doing and make these make mistakes sometimes, but then also, you know, have a, a big success and they have to learn how to be leaders. And in order to do that, you have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So within the training, I know something that you had said a long time ago, I think it was a case study or um, you may have just been talking about an athlete's training. Now, this may have been almost a decade ago. I'm not really sure. But you had talked about something to the tune of delaying like the depth jump exercise for a long time, like not doing depth jumps until an athlete was 18 or something like that. I forget the exact mm-hmm. age, but I think it's so common. Um, Hank Kreienhoff, and I, I think Jeff Moyer was the one who um, had pointing me out to Hank's uh, term acceleritis. <laughs> we suffer in this country from acceleritis, everything and, and like the barbell stuff. Okay, we got these middle schoolers. Let's get them on the 531 and triphasic or whatever, you know, whatever advanced lifting program. It's just, it's pasted into younger and younger and younger athletes training. And the same thing with plyometric work or uh, whatever training um, you are doing. And so I wanted to ask you, because you were just kind of talking about how your training is patient, um, either as you just mentioned or even before we push record. And I wanted to go over a little bit about how you approach some of those modalities. And maybe we could talk about strength first, like how, uh, and, and obviously the results spoke for themselves there. And, and we've talked about some of the results you've gotten on the last podcast as well. But tell me a little bit about um, the patience in the strength development that you took with him. And so where, where you started, uh, barbell work, like squatting, deadlifting, uh, times throughout the year it may or may not have been in the program and uh, mm-hmm. let's start there yeah part of what 
and I'll, I'll talk specifically to I'm just kind of broad strokes here, and then I'll kind of narrow it down with Hunter. Kind of my philosophy throughout my career as a coach, which is, you know, 25 years now, has been to just let the kids develop through movement at the beginning. And one of the reasons, because in society now, people say, well, you know, kids don't play enough, you know, they're not outside, blah, blah, blah. And maybe that's true for some. So as a coach, and when I'm starting off with kids that are younger, it's like, okay, if that's the case, then let's have them move. Let's have them do gymnastics. Let's have them do crawling. Let's have them do jumping. Uh, let's have them do sprinting. Let's have them chase each other. Let's have them play tag. I mean, the I mean, you can build strength with these kids in just a number of different areas. Um, and so you're developing those general qualities. And then as they begin to get older, and you know, through the coach's eye and everything, and you're and, and you're watching them you know, then maybe you begin to build in some, some skill acquisition within the weight room. So, you know, strength training literacy. So, you know, can they hinge? Can you teach them how to squat? Can they lunge? And that's why Vern's um, body weight circuits are uh, such a, a piece of art because you're incorporating all that stuff, plus you're facilitating some some physiological demands on the on the athlete, and they're getting these movement skill. And so there's a lot of things that are being solved within four exercises. And then as they get older, I don't know, freshman or sophomore in, in high school, and I'll kind of narrow it down here to Hunter. His brother Hayden who was, I think, two or three years older than him, was a really good weightlifter. And so he taught Hunter, I think, some of these skills. Because when he when I asked him to squat, even body weight, he was really good at it. Um, so I didn't have to spend a lot of time teaching that. He already kind of had this literacy built in. Um, but And then with other athletes, kind of the same thing. I You know, we need to teach them those skills. And then as they progress, then later on, if depth jumps and with Hunter, it was very basic. Like we did a lot of jump squats with barbells and dumbbells. We did do some depth jumps at the end and a little bit of contrast training. But, you know, he, he didn't need a lot mm -hmm. to get those results uh, at the end. Yeah, I, I know uh, Christian Thibodeau had talked about like contrast training is that and every athlete's going to be different. Like he had talked about some athletes who just naturally are very skillful, very athletic. They might need less of that than somebody else who's just needs more like in the middle to fill in the gaps. And it does kind of speak to, I think, almost the skill of learning what you don't need to use. You know, I think that's a skill just as much as learning what you do need to use. I mean, I guess it's the same thing kind of, but I think that's a skill we don't talk about so much. Hey, we, hey, I didn't need to use this. This guy was or girl was already a good athlete. Like we just did, <laughs> just did this instead, you know, um, versus it's, it's much easier to just unload the kitchen sink on every athlete. Yeah. I mean, I learned really early on from, uh, one of my mentors, Val Nasedkin, who, you know, I, his quote was, you know, the exercise is, you know, not as important as when and how you apply it. Mm. 
And so that's always kind of stuck with me. Like, yeah, squatting is good, but okay, how can we use it to develop this athlete? You know, do they need more slow twitch work? Do they need more fast twitch? What does the sport require? Um, and I wrote a, I wrote, I had three different athletes that I wrote a series on. This is back in 2006 when I had my own training facility. I always kind of felt back then I was kind of like the last stop shop with some of these athletes who had just been destroyed. And the series was like doing, uh, when, uh, when, when less is more. And, you know, the first kid I talk about Matt, how he was overtrained, like I think in a classical sense, kind of what we didn't do with him. Owen Marisic, who ended up playing for the Cleveland Browns. I started with him when he was a junior in high school. Same thing. Like he was training 14 times a week. Oh, wow. <laughs> the results we got from him. And then Kevin Boss, who ended up playing for the New York Giants, won a Super Bowl with them. Um, you know, kind of his his uh, journey, you know, through a, a two or three year period there where we were – It's same thing. It's what we weren't giving him, which I felt kind of lend, lended itself for him to develop. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to coach. And like you just said, sometimes it's what you don't do that is more beneficial. Yeah. I'm sure being able to track, I mean, I think any athlete that comes in and says, yeah, I've been uh, training, you know, 14 times a week. I, I don't think you necessarily need a metric or a monitor to, to be like, hey, you're overtrained. Uh, but I'm sure it's interesting to also be able to, as they do start to detrain from that, so to speak, or just to train appropriately, I'm sure it's nice to have an Omega Wave and things to be like, okay, here's where we were, <laughs> here's where we are now, and and as you're able to um, move their training load. I Actually, before, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, um, you know, within Hunter's case study, you had talked yeah, about yeah. a time in the year where... I think it was like the only lifting he was doing or barbell work he was doing was bench pressing. I do want to get to that, but actually I am curious um, in the context of what you just said, what did you do? So those athletes who came in who were 14 times a week, I mean, did you have them like, Hey, I'll see you twice a week or something. And you know, like what, what was the, what was the process there to kind of get them out of that overtraining state? Cause I think there's a lot of athletes in that bucket, obviously today. Yeah. So the one thing that I, that I think about, about those is, you're dealing with a, I think, a North American mindset of I have to do more. I have to do more. And so part of the challenge from a psychological standpoint is trying to sell them on training less. So that was the biggest challenge at the beginning on all three of them. And for example, with Owen, we took him down to three days a week of lifting. Maybe it was two more aerobic work hmm. and so he was a junior in high school when i started with them i think he weighed like 200 205 pounds um so we just you know basically cut the volume almost by two-thirds and within the first month his vertical increased like five inches wow <laughs> and again it wasn't and it wasn't what i was doing with them it's what you know we weren't doing with them and and then, you know, so fast forward at the end of six months for his senior year, he was 235 and, you know, he, he squatted 365 pounds, 20 times at one of his school tests, you know, which was stupid, but, 
And then he went on to play at Stanford. He played both ways there. Um, he scored an offensive touchdown and a defensive touchdown against Notre Dame in consecutive plays. I think the only college player to do that. And then played three years with the Browns. Um, so, you know, I mean, and with Hunter, this, um, you know, just trying to build up and from a training standpoint, the reason I only did legs at the beginning and lower body stuff was building up those tendons and ligaments, uh, was kind of my, just getting him durable to then be able to withstand training as he got older with the lower body and what high school kid doesn't like the bench press. Of course. So, <laughs> yeah, I think that is something that I mean, you can make all the cases against bench press from whatever perspective. And and to be honest, at some point, I think around age 36, I had, I finally did my shoulder in a little bit uh, from, we, right, we were doing, a, right. it, it was a, it was a lift every day type program thing. It was actually was, yeah. was working pretty well at the time, but my shoulders just getting destroyed. But I, I mean, outside of that, I, I just think at some point you know, with high school boys, like bench press is bench press, you know, like you could, you could make excuses for why not to do it, but it's kind of like. It's just something that they love doing. Like you said, it's something that they love doing. So I think that's part of the yeah. equation, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would let the kids write their own upper body training once a week. Really? It's like, okay, I, I'm just here today to uh, be a safety monitor. You guys design the training how you want it. I, you know, go for it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um I, this is a little bit of a random question because I, I did want to go back to a little bit of the, that strength question, but you mentioned uh, you know, a two-way football player. I, I was thinking about um, Travis Hunter from Colorado, like it, it, you know, plays uh, both offense and defense. And I don't think that's, I mean, I don't know of, of many other players who do that. And I, I'm, I'm not like, I mean, maybe there are, but um, what I'm trying to say is I like people who, um, gather the player loads for those players. They'll be like, their player mm-hmm. load is like so off the charts. It's like so far in the danger zone. It just doesn't make sense, you know, it, it, from one perspective of things, I guess from just a purely mechanical. But I wonder sometimes if there's like something that's like mental, psychological about those players, almost like maybe like a love for the game or I, I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm just curious if you have seen anything generally from those players that maybe goes beyond just like just workload numbers or anything like that. Yeah. And again, I've, I've had two athletes that have played at the D1 level both ways. So my, my sampling is, is very small here. So N equals two. What I can say from a physiological standpoint, because I, both of them I tested with Omega Wave like extensively, they, at least physiologically, from what I saw within those tests, like their ability to recover and their durability um, from an autonomic uh, standpoint was like phenomenal. So that just their ability to recover from session to session is off the charts. I think that's number one. And number two, to your point on the mental side, does that robustness and and recovery ability lend itself to their personality to just want to be able to go, go, go. Mm. Um, 
because Owen, as he got healthier and as we got into college and pro, like his workload when we did put a lot of stress on him was, I mean, we had sessions where he was hitting 30 to 35,000 pounds of tonnage on squat at like 85% plus of his maximum. And the next day he was coming back and was ready to go again. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about what is it that you know, creates that almost like superhero level of recovery, you know? Like, is it like what, what in the physiology or what in the, the mentality that goes hand in hand with the physiology? Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know <laughs> what the answer is. I'm yeah. genuinely curious. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, then there's other athletes who, you know, and they're older because <laughs> I got a couple D1 athletes that couldn't make it through a couple body weight circuits. It's like, okay they actually spent a scholarship on you and you can't even do this, which then you'll end up for the skill itself is so you're just so good at what you do. It doesn't matter just how bad you are on the physical side. Yeah. 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 It is great. Yeah. The spectrum of what you see is, is pretty wild. Like with that. Um, yeah. Uh, so back to, uh, the strength piece. Cause I, I did want to ask you a little bit about, I just think one thing that intrigues me that I, I find interesting is um, like, well, you're an athlete and there's a weight room. So you're going to do like squats, deadlift, bench, clean bench, or, or I said bench twice, but you're going to do all these, you're going to do all these main lifts year round because there's a weight room and you're, just, you know what I'm saying? But like, mm -hmm. I, I found this actually just kind of intuitively growing up was I think in, in my time with basketball and track, there'd be these times in the year where just, I guess just intuitively, I was like, you know, I've, I'm strong. I think I'm just not going to lift for the next, you know, month or two of the season. And, or, or maybe even in basketball, it'd be like, you know, I usually go down and lift weights, some weights in my basement after practice in the evening for a little bit, but practice is tough. I'm just going to take a little break here. And I think it was some of those times, especially those maybe like three week stints where I just had too much going on and had to take a break. But then I found like my, my performance would be extremely explosive. Um, in that short-term break that that gave me the confidence to do that but I think it's I don't know it's unless you've been through those situations though either personally or or through coaches that have kind of uh, had you know been able to let off like that um, even in my time working with swimming at Cal um, the coaches the, the taper process in swimming is like almost like a sacred thing <laughs> it's way bigger of right. a deal than it is in track I've found and each athlete, the you know, coaches go to great lengths for each athlete. Okay, this person needs to stop lifting here. This person needs more rest. This person, and it's very intuitive of a process. Um, but it was always very interesting because it's you know if you're the strength coach and you see the swimmer who's like, well, I haven't seen this swimmer in the weight room in like three weeks, and they just killed it, you know, <laughs> in their championship or whatever. And I, it's um, it's always intriguing to. It, it puts pieces in your mind as to what should be and where, how long could you rest from it? How long could you rest from heavy lifting? Anyways, all I'm trying to say is, um, you know, I, I was just going to ask you a little bit more about, you know, barbells throughout the year, um, more circuit or general training throughout the year. How did things change on that front? And what, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And I really kind of goes to performance is just so nuanced mm -hmm. within, you know, an athlete sport 
the culture within those schools or, or, or sports. So regarding like kind of the cycles throughout the year, especially at the beginning when they're really young, like, you know, freshman, sophomore, like just trying to get them exposed to as much movement as we can get them. So they're, you know, this zone zero of, you know, it's not even going to be really taxing at all. You're just going to move, you're going to get fitter, you're going to get healthier, and you're just going to get used to kind of using your own body. And then we're going to build up these skills within the weight room or jumping or whatever. Um, and then as they kind of progress and you kind of see maybe are some athletes, you know, reaching that puberty phase sooner, you know, rather than later. Okay. So now maybe you start in, you know, introducing them to a little bit more external, you know, stress, whether it be through dumbbells or barbells. Um, and then, you know, are they playing other sports? How are they coming into training? Like, are they, you know, getting better? Do they feel like they're, you know, accomplishing things? So then maybe you can build up the load maybe a little bit more and just watching them and understanding that the process at this time throughout even with some kids like a month like you know on january 1st they're 110 pounds and you know january 30th now all of a sudden they're 120 they've grown say you know two inches or something and you know they can hardly walk you know without falling down so there's a lot of these things that i'm kind of looking at that um, is kind of helping me maybe build the training a little bit, you know, differently. Because strength to me is like the easiest, easiest quality mm -hmm. to improve, bar none. Um, so I just want them to be able to move good and to be able to explore these movements um, that are, I think, going to help them within the sport themselves if that answers your question yeah so uh within like you said there was that time period where the only barbell movement uh hunter was doing was bench press which i think there's there's something to to that too and it's the sense of sprint training for example with like charlie francis and ben johnson and using bench press as a potentiation tool it's something that's very if it's meaningful and activates a lot of motor units then it's, I think, you know, just that, almost just the very general that you could call like the, the organism strength, like just that general nervous system. And you're doing other basic lower, but like the gambetta leg circuit, or all sorts of calisthenics and gymnastics. It seems like, I guess you would ask the question at this stage in the game, do you need to, for this block of time, do you need to squat right now? You know, do you need to do heavy deadlifts right. right now? Anything like that? Yeah. And I think it's like, like with me, it's like with Hunter, because I, I knew that we would squat later on. Yeah. So, you know, there were times where, you know, we would do, you know, we would do gymnastics or a game and then we would do some, you know, isometric stuff. And then he would do some leg circuits and then we would do, I don't know, for four weeks, we would do a block of like teaching squat where the load was, well, although he already knew how to squat pretty well, but the load was relatively low say like 95 to 135 pounds and he was just practicing that skill are we getting the depth right does he feel good is he locked in and we would do that once or twice a week and you know then i taught him 
you know, the, you know, RDL. So, you know, teaching him some of this basic stuff that I knew that we would be using later on. And it was sprinkled out throughout the year. So it's not like we never did it, but it never really was the focus. And actually a lot of things just were never the focus. It was everything is the focus at this point. Yeah. Um, I like that. And the lifting we, and the lifting we do is very basic. Like we're not doing a lot. We will do squat. We will do hex bar, uh, deadlift, um, RDLs, um, back extensions. I mean, you know, I would say that our exercise portfolio with the basics is maybe 10 to 15 at the most. And just trying to master those as as well as we can. And then I can use them throughout their career as they get older to try to drive some of these physiological adaptations that we want to try to achieve. Today's podcast is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can save 15% off of my favorite products with Lost Empire Herbs by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash just fly. Use the code Joel15. Lost Empire Herbs is a go-to of mine for supplementation. And looking at the principles, the patterns in nature is such a a profound, a powerful um, observing, a starting point for me in my training. And I've taken that over into supplementation or my choice of supplementation as Lost Empire Herbs has harnessed the power of nature, getting things with such minimal processing and such a rich history in Chinese medicine uh, for helping you to improve your vitality, energy, uh, and even strength through their products, uh, things such as Chili Gip, the Phoenix Formula, and so much more. Head to lostempireherbs.com slash today and check out some of my favorite herbs, and there you can get, again, 15% off your order. Yeah, you had mentioned Vern Gambetta's podcast and the discussion on creativity. I think we all, we all have it in us that we want to be creative. I think the interesting thing happens, though, like for you and I, so much of that creativity is expressed through movement, through gymnastics or calisthenics or just skilled body weight activity. And I think if you aren't doing something like that, then a lot of the creativity might be like, all right, well, like you said, you have 15 basic or major movements in the gym, but barbell movements, it might become, all right, well, th- that 15 might become 30, you know, <laughs> and, and then you aren't doing right. the, the, the creativity, the actual like more um, athletic, you could say, so, and you could certainly be athletic with a barbell, but the more like body yeah. weight, athletic, calisthenic, gymnastic, then that the cre- I, I just think that in general, physical preparation, like, like leave some creativity to go around, you know, in, in that's a, like you said, in everything. Otherwise, I think it's, it, when, when just the barbell work takes the creativity, I think that um, maybe leads to a, a little bit of over-intensification too, because you kind of have no choice, you know? It, it just, if you're going to, because it's, it's hard to probably be creative with a barbell type situation and not have it just escalate more quickly than it's probably ideal for the athlete. Yeah, and I view, like when kids go to play their sport, like I want to try it again, try to, to make them as robust and durable as possible. And strength training is part of the equation, but then there's, you know, how do you get out of bad situations? Like there's that Mm -hmm. picture of Mahomes. Yeah. I think over the weekend, you know, where he's in that weird position and like a back and, um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, people are like, well, you know, you know, he was lucky and, but you know, Hey, as part of that, 
the reason he didn't get hurt was just part of his upbringing through a, a multitude of, you know, training experiences. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like the more experience I can give the athletes and moving and getting out of situations, maybe when they get in bad situations in a game, they're able to respond in a way that keeps them out of the risk of injury, not preventing it. Again, I'm not saying that what I'm doing or anybody else is doing is preventing it, but again, maybe it's giving them a chance. So, you know, and again, when you get the intern, when you get, when you ask kids, I think this is part of coaching in this country that is just, it's just bad to me is we're never asking the athletes what they like. Yeah. How do you feel about the training? Do you like what we're doing? No, I don't. Okay. Then let's figure out what you do like to keep you coming back. I mean, I did a I do a questionnaire with every team twice a year to find out through my program like what they like, what they don't like, my coaching style so I can then refine this thing year to year to make it truly athlete centered yeah i was gonna the next like escalation question was gonna be about how you progress the plyometric program but i'll skip to the with based on what you just said actually i will skip to like the aerobic and tempo component um both Mm -hmm. i guess of hunter's program but also and i know because we talked about that last time is i is people in today's age of social media or whatever uh, the way training is disseminated like the pendulum swing and you might think, oh, well, the aerobic system isn't important at all. Well, let's just ignore it and only train, you know, only train power, only train speed. Um, and I know that was an, that's been an important, the aerobic piece is an important component of your programs. And obviously it wasn't hurting um, Hunter's ability. Uh, but I was going to ask you, like, that seems like an interesting thing with, because that's the part of the program, it would seem like, at least not for every athlete, there's a lot of workhorses out there, you know, or if you think of athletes, if they're like, you know, cats, dogs, or horses, or, or you know, or whatever, I guess a cat, a cat probably wouldn't like the, you know, the aerobic part or the tempo part, but there's some athletes who love it, probably too much, honestly. Um, so, I'm, I'm just curious how that breaks down with, how do you fit... Um, how do you fit that conditioning side to what the athlete likes? I'm, I'm really curious with that one. Yeah. And that's a, that's another great question. I, and I'll kind of go back to my progression as a coach. So, you know, I started off, you know, following, uh, you know, Louis Simmons on, you know, strength and, and Dave Tate. So, you know, elite fitness, you know, Louis Simmons, like, you know, bands, chains, like that's how I started. And I think within my peer group, you know, Landon Evans and, and some of these other coaches, you know, who I still, you know, talk to, that's kind of how we started. Now on the speed side, it was Charlie, Charlie Francis. And, you know, Charlie was, you know, is short to long or, or long to short. And, you know, thankfully Derek Hansen is, you know, really, you know, kind of taken what Charlie taught him and, and put us out, put it out to us now and in such a great um, manner that, you know, Charlie will, you know, continue to live on. But, you know, Charlie had did a lot of tempo work with his sprinters. So that was, that was kind of how I started. And then as I started to learn more about the aerobic system recovery, then I met Val at Omega Wave, 
you started understanding the autonomic nervous system. And so it's always been a part of the plan and the kind of my philosophy. And then I've been able to test a lot of athletes that did a lot of this work or didn't do any to continue to kind of formulate why it worked. And then if you, for your listeners, if you go back and listen to Randy Huntington's podcast with you, and Randy's fortunate where he can do a lot of pool work with his, you know, athletes, but, you know, even Randy talks about the aerobic system and as a recovery tool. Mm. So I'm looking at it more as we did a hard workout on Monday that was very CNS intensive for lack of a better term. How am I going to get Hunter to then be able to come back on Wednesday to go hard again or come back on Friday? And through my career, that tempo work, bike work, aerobic work has always set the athletes up to continue to build that capacity to then recover, to be able to do higher workloads, higher intensity, come back better the next day. Um, so that's how I think about it. I mean, I have a, a, a Navy SEAL right now I'm working with who, like his workload is like so high and, you know, he's doing five or six hours a week of aerobic work. He can run a sub six minute mile and he can deadlift like 500 plus pounds. Hmm. And he's a 200 pound athlete. So, you know, I, I mean, that's, I don't know if that answers your question, Joel, but I've never seen it hinder anybody ever. Yeah. Yeah, it is, especially to, I think, the individuals that it does, it hurts, is, it's just like coaches who apply it with no nuance and just more is better. And they're probably taking athletes, too, to a level of, like, lactate within that aerobic work constantly as well. It's, um, and I don't maybe, too, I, I did want to kind of get into maybe, maybe talking about the exact nature of some hunter sessions, because I think that would give a little bit more, um, Clarity. I think a lot of people might hear aerobic and they might think of like the worst workout their coach made them did or, 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 right. the, or, or right. those of us who work with athletes who go off to their sport coach and just get creamed, you know, with whatever aerobic conditioning, just like silliness, maybe they're mixing CrossFit in there or something. And I think we all know those athletes who have to deal with that stuff. Yeah. And so what, yeah. know, tell me a little bit about your, I know you talked about last time, but about some of that nuance and maybe get into the, um, you know, what you were doing with Hunter in that realm. Yeah. So with the kids, I'm, I'm always educating them. So I will talk briefly about, you know, the aerobic system and the autonomic system and, you know, mitochondria and, and just, you know, the basics of kind of why this work is important. And if they want to just be, you know, be, you know, from first quarter to fourth quarter, this is why this work is important. And so I started off at the beginning in Hunter's career as a sophomore, like, you know, we were doing, I don't know, 12 to 1600 yards, a, a session with tempo twice a week, I think. And it was, you know, that's 28 to 3,200 yards. I mean, that's not, that's like half a mile total for a week. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, and when people get upset about doing that work, it's like, okay, well, you have bigger issues than within what mm-hmm. you're doing with the athlete. If you can't even program that. Um, and so, you know, starting them off doing that very simple work. And then as the years progressed and his workload on the field became more like his, through his junior and senior year, cause he was playing both ways. And if you kind of look at practice data with, you know, total yardage run in practice, how much he was running, you know, potentially in a game, like they need to get that time on their feet, you know, throughout the week and kind of learn how to withstand that from a durability standpoint. So, I mean, at the height of his uh, training through his junior and senior year, like, you know, he was doing like 7,200 yards total in a week. Um, and some of that was, you know, in intensive tempo just because that's the way practice is. Yeah. Um, but he, he thrived within those sessions and I can back it up with kind of how he looked on HRV for training. I could tell, you know, what his resting heart rate was doing, you know, throughout these, you know, heavy periods of, of training on top of testing him within the power work that we were doing, whether it be through vertical jump or or standing long jump. And there was no hindrance to his performance. And so, um, again, it's understanding the demand of the sport, building these athletes up, you know, slowly giving them the context of why it's important and then getting feedback from them. Like, how do you feel during practice now? Oh, you know, it's hard, but it's not hard. And then you look at game film and all this, and they're, you know, playing extremely well, they're recovering. And so all these things that I think goes on social media of you should never condition aerobic work is worthless comes from a, I think a, um, uneducated point from a physiological standpoint on what humans need to kind of thrive in these high stress situations. Yeah. I think some of it too can come from kind of like, um, like almost if, if that quality has been taken to the point of abuse, like you could even say like bilateral squatting (laughs) or bilateral deadlifting taken to the point where athletes are getting injured, like pendulum swinging all the way the other way or seeing athletes who are over conditioned, which is certainly or at especially over conditioned at the expense of speed and power and and even like play and things that are joyful in nature and like that i think that can you know that's i think a pretty common rationale but it is it is interesting for me because that's something i've i've thought about i've thought about especially in the scope of like track and field well do you is active recovery best on those off days or is doing nothing (laughs) and i think i don't sometimes i almost wonder too i i and this is where I think having, yeah, those monitoring tools is that fantastic way to help answer that well. Because uh, I've, ha- I've heard of coaches who do both of those things, some who just do complete rest. And I, as for me personally, I, I know, I think maybe I come from it a lot of place where I just personally enjoy doing something. Like I, I like just going out and moving my body or, or whatever it is. Even then the best, I would say almost the best recovery day for me was actually playing racquetball. <laughs> It's just like fun. You just track a ball. It's like low level. And like, that was, that was always really fun. It's kind of like an, and there's, I'm sure there's so many possible ways to do it, but 
that was a that is a thing I still do consider from time to time is what makes it ideal to do one of those or the other total day off versus an active day and aerobic day and things like that. Yeah, and I think again talking to the athlete on what they like to do, what they prefer. Um, you know, Hunter would go out for hikes on the weekend. You know, yeah. Um, and I, you know, because high school kids, like I think, if any group should have consistent monitoring with HRB, I honestly think it's high school kids because of the school load. Um, and I've done surveys with them. Like on average, I think our kids spend 28 to 35 hours a week in school, in school. Yeah. And then, you know, it varies two to eight hours a week of homework. And then you have your sport. So the, you know, just the overall general stress that is imposed upon them is, is quite high. And you need to understand we're dealing with human beings here. And so, you know, just because you have a training session planned, it doesn't mean that they're going to be able to, um, you know, benefit from it because they're, you know, they're just overworked. Yeah. And, and track and field, I don't know. There's just some sports like track and field. It's just, it's just so, um, I mean, the kids just get beat up so bad. It's like they're in a contact sport, yeah. at least in the high school. So, yeah, I know for me, when I first got to college, and I and I didn't have to go to class all day. I was like, "This is amazing! <laughs> like, what are you right. to spend all my life?" Like, yeah. It, it sometimes I think you take that for granted. Um, so I'd like to get into the plyometric piece and then a few other questions. So you yeah. you mentioned you eventually got to depth jumps, but how do how does the plyometrics unfold in terms of you know managing intensity, deciding how and when to take those um, escalations, and then maybe talk about well, you got to depth jumps with Hunter. Like, what's the end game with what you look for in your plyo program? Yeah. So, like, at the when he was younger, it was, you know, a lot of rudimentary, um, you know, jumping. So, jump rope and, you know, skipping and, you know, skipping with the jump rope and, you know, ice skater jumps, pogo jumps. Uh, I mean, just a lot of low level things. And then even within the gymnastics program, there is, you know, there's, you know, quite a bit there, or there can be quite a bit of jumping if guys are trying to do backflips consistently. Yeah. And so just organically, they're getting you know, a lot of it. And so that's kind of how we started it out. And then like into his junior year, you know, then it became a little bit more structured. So, okay, we're going to do you know, two or three series of, you know, 30 box jumps at, at varying heights with, you know, specific rest periods. And, but again, just, you know, just kind of basic jumping up and, you know, seeing how he landed and all those types of things. Um, and then maybe we start going to some low hurdle uh, jumping. So whether it be, you know, on a seven or 12 inch hurdle, you know, working on some, you know, more reactive stuff off the ground. We may even go to a low uh, depth jump from there at the beginning. So maybe dropping off a six or 12 inch box and just, you know, teaching them how to, you know, kind of get off there and more on a horizontal pattern with, with those things at the beginning. Um, you know, I also, uh, 
you know, would have them just practice dunking a basketball if they could or trying to dunk it with a tennis ball because they, you know, love it and the intent is like extremely high. And I mean, this past year, I bought a adjustable hoop for the um, weight room. That's <laughs> so, awesome. you know, we were doing, you know, different dunks and different jumping activities. And, and so, um, but then kind of going back to Hunter and then, you know, as he got into, you know, uh, preparing for his senior year, it was, okay, now we're going to do, you know, jump squats with, you know, 30, 40% of his max, uh, you know, back squat. So now it's, you know, we're intensifying this and, and, you know, he's doing, I'm tracking it, you know, with the, with the bar monitor to make sure that his speed is good. And then we're starting to do depth jumps at higher heights. So we're going from, you know, which I think I started him at 18. I think the highest that Joel, I got at the end was, I think he dropped off a 30 inch box. And at first it would be drop down and jump up. And then as it got closer to the season, I mean, I don't know if specificity is really pertains here, but it, then it was more of, okay, drop and then jump out. Yeah. Um, and then, okay, drop, jump out and then jump up. And so there was even more complexity. And then we did at some point, some hurdle bounding uh, from higher hurdles. I think he was doing 24 inches. I think we were doing like five to six. Um, and we would do those to a sprint as well. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of how we topped out at, and that was like three weeks before that competition that he went to. Um, and you could just, like, you could just tell by the way he was moving and everything that his response to this stuff was just, like unbelievable um so you know i knew that he was capable of you know jumping quite far yeah you, you mentioned the the lower rim hoop and it made me think and the intent and it made me think a little bit of bench press it's almost like if you had to pick only two things for high school boys to do in training that they would be the most passionate about doing i feel like bench press and lower rim dunks Maybe trying to dunk on each yeah. other, like one guy tries to block it and one guy tries to dunk. <laughs> you know, that might be the that might be the two. I think that might be a solid two to put in the training program for a lot of individuals. You got the lower and upper body, you know, and the the intentions are going to be there. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I grew up with three younger brothers. We had a dunk hoop that would raise from like eight and a half to you know nine and a half feet, and you know, you would watch Julius Irving, you know, dunk on somebody, then, you know, you're trying to go out and dunk on your brother, you know, <laughs> the same way he did it. And so these, yeah, these kids, I mean, it's, it's fun. And like you said, those two things, I think, yeah, you could have, you could run your whole training based off yeah. of those two things. I think it would be, you know, it would be so interesting. I, back when I did my master's thesis was on it basically the role of intent in how does it change a depth jump. I had people just do a depth jump and just jump as high as you can. Like you're not trying to go over a hurdle or touch anything. You just jump in space. And then mm -hmm. the, the other constraints were as you jump over a hurdle or you jump up and touch a vertex. And when there's, when there's goals or an intention, you jump higher or faster. Um, but it would have been interesting to do a meaningful constraint, you know, <laughs> like, okay, here's a hoop. 
Now let's do it. All right. Now here's a hoop and someone's going to try to block you. You know, I just, I don't, I don't know if I can capture that in the lab, but, and, but that would be so interesting to see. Cause I, I would be willing to bet that for, especially if you've played basketball and it's not just a vertex, like it's a hoop and someone's going to try to block you. Like, I think there's going to be some higher rate of force development there at no. that instant of contact. Yeah. I mean, so we have, I have two tether balls at the school that I throw over the the power racks and I pull them up and I'll have kids, you know, run and jump up and try to head those, you know, like a soccer header. Um, so the intent on that, like you, you have them just jump up and try to touch the top of the power rack. Then you put the ball up there and watch them like how they look at the ball, like their run up to, I mean, it, it's like, it, it looks like it's, the intent has gone up like a thousand exponentially mm, yeah. just simply hanging a little something up there to try to get them to, to attain. It's like, why wouldn't you try to expose? And that's why play, when we go back to this, that's why within the play structure with your friends, like that's constantly there. Yeah. Yeah, I, absolutely. And that's where this has gradually hit me more and more each year but weighing everything done in training against especially like like agility change of direction like short speed stuff weighing whatever you do against what you see happening in a game you know the intensity and the speed and and everything and it's like just because you know, if, if I'm doing like a an agility squ- uh, drill of, of some sort with some cones laid out, and just because I might make a cut that is, you know, quote unquote correct, if it's 10% slower than what I did at the game, I don't know. Sometimes I just think about the stimulation of what my body is getting out of that thing, you know, versus yes. actual game, game speed, game, um, or just things that are there that are motivating, or just finding something in that drill that is motivating enough to um, get that extra power output to adapt to. Yeah, I don't know if you're if you follow hockey at all, um, but there are the hockey players from Russia, Pavel Datsuk. Uh, they call him the Magic Man. And um, if people don't follow Mark O'Sullivan on Twitter, like I would highly recommend it. Um, he's a researcher uh, in Norway right now. I think he's originally from Ireland, but him and a colleague did a study on Pavel. Uh, how he how Pavel learned hockey growing up in the Soviet Union, and so one of the games. So Pavel liked to when he was playing within his with, with his friends, like they tried to make the game the constraints they put on themselves to make it harder or more more enjoyable. Like it's extremely fascinating, and so one of the things that Pavel liked to do was he liked to play uh, ice hockey in felt boots on the ice uh, and he'd play with a bouncy ball. And so it was, it was creating, you know, a totally different game that they had, that he had to start and stop uh, differently. And so Marco Sullivan, and I forget the guy's name that wrote the paper with them, but they did a full research study on these constraints and economic constraints and, you know, they didn't have a lot of money for sticks. So Pavel, you know, he didn't do a lot of slap shots because if his stick broke, he didn't know when he would get another one. Hmm. So that economic constraint was a advantage for him on how he built his his game. 
Um, and so I constantly think about this on the kids and how we're training them, like trying to put or have them put their own constraints within some of these things yeah. to just give them a totally different experience. Yeah. Kind of like what you and I were talking about, about the, the five girls that you were working, working with uh, on the high jump. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Plyomat. The Plyomat is not only an incredible vertical jump and reactive strength index uh, testing device, but it also is an incredible training device. The Plyomat not only allows single response jumps, but also the chaining of multiple mats together. So you can use it for bounding multiple series of hurdle hops. You can get not only height, but reactive strength for a multi-jump situation. It's an incredible, again, testing and training tool, and you can learn more at plyomat.net. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It is, you know, it's funny because actually that was, um, it, like, there's the gift of inaccessibility so many times. Like, even yes. with the high jump, we spent more time doing, um, you know, that uh, constraint-based jump drill to warm up where we just did four or five different types of high jump, and every time you completed them, we'd raise the bar. It was um, just the the area, it had just rained, and so I didn't want them doing circle running drills uh, to warm up with just their tennis shoes on. Usually, I do those with tennis shoes. I could have had them do it with their spikes on, but I was like, you know, I'm just going to take advantage. We're just going to put the spikes on and have some fun. And, you know, it's it's those, sometimes the environment or a rainy day or whatever it is. Uh, even, you know, um, when I was, um, my first depth jump program. So, speaking of early intensification... <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you mentioned you mentioned that you you know you you're holding off like the highest depth jumps till later on and so mm -hmm. i um i had done like the high repetition jump programs earlier in my like freshman year of high school like eighth grade like the air alert like like the do 150 squat jumps type thing well what's interesting uh -huh. is people would see a program like air alert where it's just like the only way up is numbers and say oh that's a horrible program it's just going to destroy your knees well I actually never made it through the whole program, but the first two or three or four weeks of the program, I actually gained quite a bit on my jumping because it was, wasn't was absurd yet. <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, do it. Right, if right. you haven't been trained, like, I mean, for me, I hadn't been squat trained. So, yeah, doing two sets of 30 or two sets of 40, like half squat bodyweight jumps was actually really, really good for me. <laughs> Once it got up to a certain right. number, it was too much. But um, anyways, I... I got this book called The Science of Jumping or Program. I think it's probably still out there. It's, I mean, it, this was like 1999 or 2000 and it was a depth jump program, basically. It was like, and it had some stuff you'd mentioned, like depth jump to long jump was in there, um, all sorts mm -hmm. of depth jump variations. That was the program that actually told me don't do a, uh, like distance running if you want vertical gains. And up until then, I had like loved distance running because my dad did it and I did it. I mean, I wasn't like 30 miles a week, but I was running. I'd go out and run like two or three miles at a time in eighth grade. And so stop doing that. Uh, <laughs> I do love caveat though with the aerobic. I do tempo tempo sprints for me are, are especially over hurdles where it's kind of fun. That is my bread and butter, like seven by 200 over hurdles at like tempo pace that's that's my jam um helps me recover yeah, good that's my awesome. feet. but um anyways the the depth jump i had the economic constraint of well i my dad built these boxes for me that were like not the world's greatest boxes but i basically had two heights so i didn't have like nice adjustments but so i had to be kind of specific when i wanted to make the jump to the bigger box but i started to figure out and and this is just me in my backyard on grass and I started to figure out on my own, like, I will jump higher if, oh, hey, there's a tree branch over here. 
if I go jump up and try to touch this tree branch, I think I it feels more explosive. And so I would just like drag the boxes over to a tree and whatever branch seemed attainable, I would just go and jump and try to touch that. And, you know, and then maybe I'd find and it would change on the day because, you know, it might have rained. The tree branches are hanging lower. The tree grows or whatever. Right? Like, But it's just kind of funny because but I'll tell you. Like, I think there was something about that autonomy in that program, too, and kind of making it my own. I, I mean, on that program, I went from getting maybe my wrist, this is at age 16, my wrist probably like maybe a couple inches over the rim, maybe three inches over the rim, to elbow at the rim in about maybe like a, I would say about a three or four month time span with like the the depth jump. I, I would say maybe I was, I'll give myself a little more credit before on a good day, maybe I could have got my wrist like maybe three or four inches over, but it was, I mean, it was unbelievable how much I improved in a short period of time. And I do think the program and the buy-in of the program was substantial, but there was also something to, oh, another thing I did was uh, they had medicine ball throws and uh, vertical medicine ball throws. And in the backyard, I had like these kind of telephone pole lines that, that was a weird neighborhood. I didn't throw it, I didn't throw it over them. I think that would have been silly. I might have tried to once, but I always tried to throw it like up to the line. Like wherever the line was, I would try to just throw it up and, you know, to the level of the line. And so I I had a lot of stuff kind of like that, funny enough. And, you know, in, in the hindsight of being better at my sport, which I was trying to dunk for basketball, I should have had constraints for basketball, <laughs> but I mean, ended up becoming a high jumper. So I guess, you know, it, it all worked itself out. But I, I always loved those stories. It also reminds me too, just one other thing quickly is the book Bounce. Yeah. Um, it was one of the first books I read on training and performance. It was like the, the fastest table tennis player in all of England, like the fastest meaning like literally his hand looked like it was probably like in the matrix or something, whereas like, it's just like so <laughs> right. fast back and forth. That guy um, grew up playing where the the room wasn't big enough. And so he didn't, he had to literally just butt up against the table and he didn't have the luxury of like doing those big jumping shots you see like in the highlight reels. He just had to react faster. And that's why he was so fast. It was an economic constraint. <laughs> and I like that. Those are so cool because those are like the underdogs. So it's like Rocky, tra- it's like Rocky training in Siberia. Hey, what do I got here to train with, you know? There's something right. that that's a, it's a story and and we don't talk about those things in training nearly as much as we should cuz that's what makes so much of it fun and meaningful and oh hey you remember that gym we used to have to train in or like Joe DeFranco's 500 square foot closet I remember him talking about that you know when he was on the podcast a long time ago and all the great results he got training out of that with individuals so you got me on kind of on a a, a little bit of a tangent there, but it's it's a good one Oh yeah yeah, I think Joel, what you need to do is you need to have you need to market your uh, tree branch uh, telephone <laughs> wire somehow. We need to come up with a name, and uh, you can you can mail out uh, tree branches and and uh, wire oh, to yeah. your potential customers. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Or maybe it's like the um, the ancient samurai method, or something. It's like as the grass grows, like you jump over it every day or something. So <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> it's hard to i don't know how much you know you could just like charge for that you know because it's like well you just kind of find a field and just have at it right yeah yeah those are those are uh yeah it's uh, or like yeah the 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 picking of the milo picking up the the calf as it grows up or whatever just so it's it's just so cool to think about all that so uh, just a couple more things here mark uh, before we finish up one i did want to ask you more about the hill the hill sprints and some adaptations with hill sprints oh i did want to say too i had this thought is you had mentioned plyometrics 
being more horizontal in nature initially, I believe. And I, I was just going to make a comment is I think that's that in itself as a constraint, I think is really cool because it, it keeps the contact times pretty quick. You know, it keeps things more bouncy and you don't even have to necessarily tell an athlete, hey, be quick off the ground in these vertical pogos that we're going to do in this variation. It's just like, hey, if you're if you're covering horizontal distance, it kind of takes care of that itself. Um, so I just thought that was, you know, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that was really, um, I think that's something that makes it a little easier and cleaner in, in that perspective of things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so anyways, with the, so I do want to ask you about hill sprints, but I did want to say, cause I, I, I know you go into this in the article that you have a three part, I believe blog on training hunter and you have like the breakdown of how you did the weeks and things like that. Um, I'm curious, like what, did, what did a typical week look like? How did this come together, uh, in a training week? Um, and how did that progress over time? I, I'm sure it wasn't always the same, right. And, you know, there was input on his end, but just generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So at the be like kind of the, the weekly template at the beginning was, you know, we had three days. So like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, where it was, you know, leg circuits, um, you know, sprinting, you know, basic jumping when he was, you know, younger, like sophomore year. And so, you know, on Monday, Friday, it may be, you know, multiple circuits of, you know, the body weight squat to a lunge, to a step up, to a, to a pogo jump. And the volume on that would range anywhere from like three to five circuits. And then if you look at Vern's progression, you know, over time, I would try to get Hunter to, do those circuits multiple times without any rest in between. So I think at the end, you know, after say, I don't know, four to eight weeks, he could do five circuits without any rest. Um, and then from there, then I would, you know, we would move on to maybe a little bit more complex. Um, on Wednesday, the circuit was a little bit different. So it was more, so we would actually use some resistance like through dumbbells we would do, you know, isometrics on those given days. Um, but three days a week where it was, you know, lower body focus. And then prior to that, we would maybe do some gymnastics at the beginning. He would do games with his friends, you know, with, with the team. And then we would do some sprinting. Um, and the way that the school is set up and the weather out here in Oregon is like it's hit and miss. Um, so at the beginning, if weather was nice, we would run hills and we would start off with 10 yards. I have like two hills that, you know, range from like 10 to 30 yards. And so, you know, we'd start off with say six or eight of those and, you know, do that two or three times a week, weather permitting. Um, and then as he got older, uh, you know, after say, you know, a year, year and a half, you know, then the lifting on, you know, Mondays and Fridays would be intensive, I guess, for lack of a better term. And then Wednesdays would be more of an alactic jumping day, um, you know, almost like a Warner Gunther uh, progression on the extensive side. Uh, and then as he got into his senior year, it was kind of the same setup, but it was just kind of how uh, intensive those you know, those Monday, Friday sessions were. And then his junior and senior year, I actually started using like oxidative work with the lower body. 
throws so through like tempo squats at the end of his session to kind of add more layers to you know his aerobic capacity you know to build up his work capacity um so that was and then tempo runs on tuesdays and thursdays and then as and i know we'll talk about it here shortly but then we would do hill sprints you know as a conditioning tool which i can talk more about on kind of why we did that and kind of how i progressed it with him so that was kind of the basic week yeah yeah let's uh let's finish up with that then because the the hill sprints for conditioning i think there's some specific Mm -hmm. adaptations you're looking for so yeah, tell me a little bit about yeah. that usage versus just pure speed. Yeah, so, and again, this, you know, I, so in 2007, Down the Sedkin gave a, a seminar at my uh, training center. And this is where I first learned about, you know, oxidative capacity of the fast twitch fiber. And, you know, that term, you know, the adaptations that Val talked about, at that point, it was like a watershed moment. I think as coaches, we maybe have two or three of those aha seminars or things that happen that you read. And so that seminar that Val gave us changed the way that I thought about training and still kind of think about it today. And so the method that I use is it's an all-out sprint, either uphill or, or with a sled for less than five seconds. So you're recruiting as much, you know, fiber, you know, fast fibers as you can. But because the duration is so short, you know, and, you know, you don't want to exceed, you know, your anaerobic threshold that it's, you know, purely aerobic. And, you know, that's going to lend itself to repeatability within these team sports. And so that was, and that still is kind of the basis of these hill sprint sessions that I do with the athletes. But then you also get, I think, some residuals on the speed side as well. Yeah. Um, so it, it's kind of a byproduct of that because there's times at school where I can't do any sprinting on the field because we just don't have access to it because of lacrosse or baseball or track and field is using it. And so you know, the constraints of what I can and can't use kind of, okay, we, I, I have to do this, uh, because. Yeah. It was, um, uh, I was going to say with, um, take a quick note there. Yeah. So, you know, I was going to say you, you had mentioned even the speed residuals and it is interesting. Cause I think if you had mentioned like, okay, we're going to do, you know, if it's if it's a lot of sprints and it's mm-hmm. a short recovery time, you know, I think it's easy to only think, oh, well, that's only endurance. That's only speed endurance. But I've found that, I, I mean, I wouldn't make this the only workout, but if you've been doing a lot of just more shorter emphasis workouts, just short, high quality, a little bit more typical, what we think of when we think of speed training, and you've kind of hit a plateau... I found workouts like that, like I like you mentioned the sled, like this past, um, just this past year. I, I remember I started this because there was one day in the gym myself that I didn't have time. It was a speed day just for my own training, and I just didn't mm-hmm. have time, and so a <laughs> constraint. And I had like right. fifteen twenty minutes, so I hooked myself up to a sled, and I did every minute on the minute sprint for it was probably about fifteen twenty yards with the space I had, 
And so, I mean, that was not that long. It definitely didn't go into lactate for each one. You know, it's a pretty short burst, right. but it's every minute and you recover enough that you aren't, you, again, getting into that, you said anaerobic threshold, but it's, you know, with the next day or two after that workout, I was like, man, she feel pretty good. Like, and I started putting stuff yeah. like that in some client workouts and it was always met really well. Um, it actually made me think there was one day, this was back to like, you know, I think we talked about conditioning coaches and what was the worst workout. And I will say my freshman year of college, the distance coach was like the head track coach or the cross country coach. So of course, all the workouts were like way longer. And honestly, I had a really I mean, I, there was a lot of adjustments as being a freshman, but that was not a good year. Um, I didn't jump as high as I did in high school for the most part. Um, slower, long jump was way worse. Not playing basketball anymore either hurt a lot. But yeah, so a lot of like just longer running that really wasn't that helpful or effective. And one of the workouts we did, though, I'll never forget it. It was in the fall and we only did it once. And any workout you only do once <laughs> is kind of like, oh, geez, <laughs> right. here we go. Like, you know, it's like, oh, the mental. It's like, let's do 100 hundreds or something. But it was a 20-minute hill run where you sprinted up this hill that was, I don't know, maybe it was like 80 meters, and then jogged, walk, jog down. I think you had to jog back down. And it was high intensity. Like, I was racing this guy, uh, one of my training partners, up each time. And it was brutal. I mean, I was like dying at the end. But then the next day I was screwing up like just in the gym shooting around and I went to do some dunks and I was like flying and I was like, I don't know what that did yesterday, but something good happened. And, and I, I, I wouldn't say it wasn't one of those things where I would say I wouldn't say, oh, yeah, do that every week or twice. A week. I, I think it kind of loses whatever it gives you then. I think it's almost just one of those things where it just kind of digs into the the muscles in a just different way, just due to the repeat nature. And maybe there's some elasticity stuff in there too, you know, but ever since then, I was always a little bit more open to that idea of like, yeah, that re repeat power, um, not just for um, the, you know, the, the obvious, but also for, you know, a little bit, just a little bit of that plateau breaking uh, when you've kind of tapped out all the pure, the pure speed stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. And with the team sport athletes, you know, I mean, and it's all the rage now, like how fast you run in a game or, you know, I'm hitting 23 miles an hour. I mean, that's just like, it's, it's clickbait on, you know, social media. And again, I mean, obviously, man, speed is important. I'm not saying that, but within sports of like football, lacrosse, basketball, it's about repeatability. Mm-hmm. And you have to build that repeatability through durability. And, and if you don't, then, you know, when it means something at the end of the game, you just may not have the speed to be able to do it. And so with those hill sprints, like one of the things that I've done in the past is I've used free lap before I've used some other GPS tracking just to, okay. You know, we're going to do, you know, four quarters of this, you know, you're going to do 10 per quarter. Like, what is the speed and degradation through that? And, you know, when do you start hitting, you know, when do you start slowing down? And so to me, that data is important then to build, go back and, and start building some even more specific training to try to improve that capacity. Um, 
And, and I've even had Moxie monitor on the athletes that do that. It's like, okay, we're going to have GPS, we're going to have heart rate monitor, and now we're going to have a Moxie. We're going to have a timing gate and we're really going to see really narrow this focus down on, you know, when stuff starts to go awry and, and why it's doing that, how it's doing that. And, okay, how can I build the training to try to, you know, improve those qualities? Yeah. For the, for the hill sprint workouts, like what would a sample be of, you said like four or five second bursts. Um, how, how many, how would the rest be? Like what's the typical volume? Is there a drop off yeah. performance you're looking yeah, at? So or? with, so with the football guys at the beginning, like when I start those and we can typically start them in like May, um, you know, we'll do 20 reps of that, you know? So I think it ends up being 20 to 25 meters for all the guys. And it, and the rest is 50 to 60 seconds. Um, and then, I'll, you know, I usually take the volume up to like 40 okay. within those time frames with, with just the regular rest period. And then as we get into the summer and now it becomes more specific to how we play the game, it's going to be you know, 15 to 20 yards. So even now it's probably less than four seconds or three seconds even, and it's going to be a 30 second rest period. So it's specific to the no huddle offense that yeah. we run. And then we'll work up to 50. Yeah. So with breaks in between like quarters and, and, and halves. Gotcha. So with the 40, you're saying before, like it's about a minute each. So like, that's like a yeah. 40 minute workout or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that method is, Victor Selyanov, and I don't know if you've ever talked to, about him on his, but that Val's method that he taught us, he got from Victor, um, who was doing that work, I think, back in the mid 90s. And so that's where the, you know, the training, that training method originally came from. And so those are the recommendations that I typically use there. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you were at the seminar. It was Jay DeMeo's seminar with, it was him. Yeah, and I was like, Oh, nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I remember my intern, my, my intern at the time, Jake Jensen, I think, yeah. uh, translated Victor's talk. Yeah. I remember one of the things I remember very clearly about that was like, you know, Victor, I think it was kind of what Pavel Satsling has talked about, I believe is like the basically lactate's bad. Don't, you know, it's going to burn up something in the muscles or something like that. And then Val was like, I disagree. <laughs> and I was like, this is right. interesting. Like, who do I believe? I'm, you know, I, I mean, this was like a decade ago for me and I had no idea. Right. Like, I don't know who to believe here. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. But I mean, I'm not to say that like, you know, I, I don't think that by any means, I'm sure it doesn't invalidate anything with the actual method. It's just what happens, you know? <laughs> What happens if you yeah. have lacked, you know, like, uh, it isn't, I mean, I know for me, I, I always feel like, um, like that little bit of lactate, you know, it, it's maybe it's more like how much, you know, like little bit of lactate, good. A lot of lactate, <laughs> probably. A pr and there's also like that discoordination that comes with it. I, yeah, I, something I'm still, I still think about every now and then, but just practically, I guess I, I kind of like that, you know, slight lactate here and there feeling. Yeah. And I mean, when, when you put the moxie on these athletes and you have them, I mean, it's all about at least like how much oxygen during, you know, these bouts of exercise are they getting or not getting? And then you can kind of mm -hmm. dictate the rest periods. Um, cause I mean, Randy talks about, you know, using human, 
with you know the Chinese athletes yeah. and it, it's really beneficial on the recovery time because uh, I think Randy talked about it in your podcast where I think one of his athletes like needed like a minute 30 rest because it was very individualized and I think he said Sue needed like three minutes yeah um, so it's not even necessarily the workout itself but more of okay how are they recovering from those workouts to repeat it yeah yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I remember when Randy was talking about that. It's it actually makes me want to dig my. Um, I have a Moxie, but I the laptop. I, I didn't have a non Mac laptop to run it off of, so I bought a cheap one that didn't work well, and it's still sitting here in my basement. But I might have to go try <laughs> that, honestly. Um, but anyways, I know that's. Uh, I think that's about the end of the questions, uh, Mark, that I had for you here. Um, you know, someday I'm sure I'll have a round three. I think actually I probably. Um, I have a few I'll have to run back at you at some other point, but um, man, great talking to you again. I always enjoy these conversations, and I will. Um, I'll make sure I post in the show notes the Hunter Kavanaugh series, and just so everyone can also just give more details there. Yeah, and then you can market your uh, your tree branch. Yeah, program. I'll be working. I'll be working on yeah. it. I'll, yeah. I'll, I actually made. I think I made a note here. I'm going to call it the the ec- economic constraints or something nice. Economic, nice. how to constrain nice. how to constrain yourself <laughs> that's right. that's what it'll be so all right well thank you so much mark i appreciate your time man thanks again joel thanks for tuning in to another podcast i will see you next week